Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Way back in 1982, Hal Becker was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was just 28 years old. Instead of killing him, cancer made him eternally grateful. He made a vow to have fun, and he's kept that vow ever since. Hal truly is one of the most joyful people I know. I call him Mr. Happy. He absolutely insists on enjoying life. He's also nationally known. He's an expert on sales, customer service, and negotiating. He conducts seminars and consults to more than 140 organizations. His client list includes IBM, Disney, New York Life, United Airlines, Verizon, AT&T, and hundreds more. At age 22, Hal was Xerox's number one salesperson among a national sales force of 11,000. Then Hal founded and became CEO of Direct Opinions, one of America's first customer service telemarketing firms that administers more than 2 million calls per year. Hal's an author and a consultant who lectures around the world, but don't call him a motivational speaker. Ah, Hal, thanks for joining me. I love that you received the Toastmasters International Communication and Leadership Award. One of only eight people in the world have given it, but you hate being called a motivational speaker. Why is that? Even my friends think, oh, he's a motivational speaker. I'm just really a sales trainer because to me, and this is not knocking any of the motivational speakers, be all you can be, go for it, grab the gold ring, the bread. And I, I'm just a sales trainer. So I'm going to teach you the science behind it, what to do. So I'm motivational because I'm high energy, but I'm a sales, I'm simply a sales trainer. That's all. A sales trainer. Okay. So I think you got it from your dad. Your dad, Joe was a bookie and he used to tell you stories about the betting scene of Cleveland, but I love that he went straight when you were born and became a used car salesman. That's You're going through some old notes or research. I I am. So what did your dad teach you about sales? See, first of all, I've known Regina forever. I did not know you knew that. So <laughs> that's really cool because now we're going to talk about my heroes. Uh, I was an only child, still am, and my parents were my best friends. No dysfunctionality, just love. And uh, unfortunately, they died when I was in my early 30s within a few years of each other. But I did not know this. And then I was looking through clippings and I knew my dad was a bookie, but I did not know to what extent. And it was a misdemeanor before the 1950s. So he made a ton of money. Well, when I was born, he went straight and and he had an eighth grade education. He didn't know what to do. So he became a used car dealer. I mean, used cars in not a great neighborhood, you know, two $300 cars. He didn't call them junkers. He called them clunkers. And I used to go and visit him all the time, you know, when I was able to drive, obviously. And the reason he was my hero, I saw this on so many times. You know, I mean, I mean, again, a $20,000 a year career. We, we lived in a rental to family. We never owned anything. You know, Salvation Army for clothes, but the love. We never worried about the money. But I remember so many times going down there and I'm just hanging out with him because he's my best buddy. And people are going, Joe, they drive up. I don't like this car. And I'm just sitting back, you know, because I'm a kid. And I remember like it was a week ago, him going, well, what do you want? Do you want your money back? Do you want another car? Pick any car on the lot you like take whatever. And they used to call him Honest Joe. This is a used car guy. So I used to say, Pop, what do you do? I mean, you know, the guy picked out a more expensive car. He goes, so? He goes, they'll come back. They trust me. That was it. 
So my mom, you know, just, I think I married my mom, one of the sweetest people I've ever met. I mean, ever met in my life. And everyone that ever met my mom will say, she's the nicest person I ever met. So I just got lucky and I think of them every day. In fact, if you know how people say, oh, I'd give everything to be with my parents. No, I'm not giving everything. But if I saw them, you know, if there is a heaven, if there is anything, and I get to have that conversation, it's just going to be two words. Thank you. Thank you. So that's, that's it. Yeah, my, they're my heroes, always have been. Jamie Foxx said something really cool. I don't know the backstory, but I, I, I'm understanding he was raised by his grandparents. He was really close to his grandparents. And he said in an interview once, he talks to his grandmother every day. Paused. And he goes, in my dreams. I go, wow. Really? Yeah. And we all have dreams. Hopefully they're good ones. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. I'm glad you, you shared about your parents because you really do have an innate joy about you. It's so I, rare. It really is. You know, like my friend, you know, look, we all complain. My, you know, my wife will tell her, I'm the biggest complainer in the world. But when it comes to the daily stuff and cancer survivors understand this, Regina, a lot of people don't. You, you we're scared to death to go for an annual physical because we don't want any more bad news. You know, anytime you get a, a pimple, you tumor, <laughs> you, know, you can't help but go to a bad place. And I just want to get up every day. And, and today's sunny. Wow. And even added more, even if it's gray, it's still another day, you know, and I'm not being phony here. I just love getting up and making myself happy. You know, we all got to do stuff we don't want to do, but I'll try to add a spin to it where it's, all right, let's get this over with and move on to something fun. Let's talk about your cancer journey. You were diagnosed at 28 years old back in 1982. I think it was like Christmas Eve. You felt a horrible pain in your stomach. This was um, life-changing for a couple reasons. Obviously, you know, you're, you felt like I kicked in the stomach. I waited two and a half months like most people. I get to the doctor. They go, Congrat I'm shortening this up, obviously. Congratulations. You're stage three. You've got uh, tumors in your abdomen, your chest, and your brain. And you got three, four months. Uh, there's an experimental program in Indiana, a guy named Dr. Einhorn, who will, as part of a protocol, you'll be a phase two trial. That's your only hope. It's very curable, depending on how early we catch it. You're going to need multiple surgeries and then eight months of chemo in the hospital. And, you know, I'm not expecting that. I'm expecting Ben Gay, go home, you know. Right, um, right. But the reason it was life-changing is I remember going there, and I'm not recommending this to anybody, but I think the lesson is important. Part of the protocol was called a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. They want to cut you from here to here. Eight and a half hour surgery. And I said, what's the surgery for? They said, well, we have to stage the cancer. I go, okay. What's afterwards? Chemo. What cures the cancer? Chemo. Why do we need the surgery? Because it's part of the protocol. It didn't sit well with me. And he goes, I need a decision now. He's very cold. But, but not cold, he was doing his job. It was part of a study, a trial. So I get that. I need an answer now. I said, I don't know. So my parents were driving back. And I remember, I've never seen my parents really cry together. And we're, they're crying because their son's going to die because I said no. So I don't remember if my father called, I called. But there was a head of urology at University Hospitals. He's since passed away. But his name was um, uh, Marty Resnick, Dr. Resnick. And I just looked at him. I said, look, if I was your son, what would you do? I mean, part of me says the surgery, if we already have a CAT scan, if I take another CAT scan and the tumors dissipate, 
why would I need the surgery? Because it helps. Never been done that way. I go, but isn't surgery risky and the long-term side effects? And he goes, it's very risky. I go, can we just start the chemo and go back if I need the surgery? Can I always take a step back? My line was, you can always shorten pants, but you can't lengthen them. And he goes, okay. So the reason I'm telling you that I didn't have the surgery, and I'm not saying to other cancer patients, don't do what your doctor says, but I am telling you, no matter what you have, you have to be your own advocate and ask many, many questions and go in written down questions so you don't forget maybe a second opinion because there's different schools of thought in almost any disease. So, I mean, always listen to the doctors, but don't just say, oh, whatever, whatever you say. You know, when I had cancer uh, back in 1998, uh, stage two uh, breast cancer, I remember looking at it like, I own this team. I own the body. My coach is my surgeon. I've got a good oncologist. I got a good chemo nurse, but ultimately it's my body. They have a a bunch of other patients, but there's nobody that's going to look out for me more than me. Right. And you have to own it, take ownership kind of. You you have to look at it logically and write out your questions because it's so emotional when you're hit like that. You are not thinking straight and you've got to collect your thoughts. And I'm just a big believer in the team, get the right team and get someone you trust and like that you can have a relationship with. I even tape recorded the doctor sessions because I felt like the shock made it like how Charlie Brown hears the parents. It's like, want, want, want cancer, want, want, want cancer. Like all I heard was cancer, nothing else. Why didn't we have this meeting yesterday? I need shoulder replacement. And I was rushed out. I'm not going to say the doctor's name, but I was rushed. And my wife and I look at each other and go, we were rushed. I wished I would have taped it. New idea. Thank you. Hang on there. Yes. <laughs> so, so your chemotherapy, it was hard. You were in the hospital. I wasn't in the hospital, but mine, I remember them wearing gloves. And they said that if they touched it, it would burn them. And yet it was going into my... Yeah. I call it the Drano. Yeah. My arteries. Yeah, Drano. And then when you go to the bathroom, you pee red. I'm like, I don't know, man. And the science says toxic waste zone. You're like, okay, it's in my body. What was it like for you to, to really, that, that was a long time and at the age of 28 to be in the hospital. All your friends are out there having fun and you're like just trying to survive. Well, you know, when I first was diagnosed, I said, okay, I'm going to beat this. And remember, this is 82. So I said, you know, marijuana, is it, is it okay? <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, but you can't, you know, because it's a different time, way different time. You're ahead of your I time, medical remember, marijuana. And I didn't have these conversations with my parents, but I just remember rolling joints and I couldn't wait to start chemo because the room <laughs> was billowing with smoke. And I said, hey, if this helps. But day, the first day I had an allergic reaction. They don't even have the drug on the market anymore called Regalin, which was an anti-nausea drug. And I was, I went into convulsions, couldn't hold anything down, any orifice, you know what I mean? And they realized, and I thought, oh my God, I don't know if I can make eight months of this because I'll be hospitalized most of the time. I don't know if I can do this. And I was going to quit. It was that, that dramatic. Yeah. And they, and somebody came in and like a nurse goes, I think he's having an allergic reaction. So to answer your question, most of the time I was heavily sedated on Haldol and Valium. So I slept a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I was able to come home a little bit of time in between, but yeah. what I did, which the nurses, I, you know, just my style. I used to wrap myself in a sheet and do a Gandhi imitation, you know, take the pole, walk around, <laughs> to laugh, you know what I mean? Cause the, you don't humor want to humor, sad sack and, and post-it notes just got invented. They just came out. I come home and there's yellow sticky things all over my house. How, <laughs> when you die, get the car, Don. 
when you get, I get your, your microwave, Nancy. They tagged everything. <laughs> My Stouffer's frozen foods. Everything was tagged. What are you going to do? You laugh. So rather than push my friends aside, I tried to make them comfortable by opening them up and letting them know what I was going through. So it was a party, a sad party, but we were all together. Some people internalize it. I externalize it. You know, cancer is one of those things that it really sorts who are the people that are really with you and who just can't handle it. And, and it's a real, like for some people, it's a deal breaker. They just can't handle somebody sick or it scares yeah. them. But you know, the people that stayed, man, I had a friend come and wash my hair because I couldn't take a shower for a few days. People who brought me movies before Netflix was invented. Like yep. they just showed up. I, I, a woman who I barely knew bought me new pajamas and a bathrobe. Like how kind, you know? It changed me. I never forget this one guy, Larry, who I was acquaintances with, Larry Jones. I got to give him, you know, and and we used to like meet at Beachwood Place, just which is a local mall, just to have coffee on Saturday. When I got sick, he called me or visited me every day, every day. And then you start to realize some people that you thought were B friends right. moved to the A list right yep, away. Yep, the A list. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hal, I want to talk about some of those long term effects because you know when you go through chemo, they give you like ten pages of side effects. And my husband said to me. You know, if you read the side effects on the aspirin bottle, you would never take one. So I had to remember like, okay, because all of them say you could die from it. I'm like, okay, is this going to save me? So you do take a gamble. For you, that gamble was long ago, but you've had some long-term side effects. Can you well, share you know, about that? Yeah, I look back at it this way. If I didn't do the chemo, I'd be dead. It was very simple. So now you have to say, okay, but, but it's easier to look in the future and go, oh, 20 years from now, I don't care because you're not thinking that way, especially when you're a kid, you're indestructible. But, uh, you know, I mean, the, the major ones that bother me, not even bother me, <sighs> I lost peripheral vision, big deal. Um, when you touch snow, I forget the name, Renaud syndrome, it's like little pins and needles, big deal. Uh, my memory is completely shot, could have been from the pot then, <laughs> or it could be the chemo. But it's like Swiss cheese, and you, they call it chemo brain, which you're familiar with, obviously, yeah. and the people you talk to. So, Luckily, I've got great friends around me from elementary school that are my memory. The bad news is I don't have any family. You know, in those days, you know, you took eight pictures a year. And you remember your thoughts through pictures. Now, if you're a kid, you got 4,000. So my my family, my memory, all that's gone. The major side effect, it's called pulmonary fibrosis, which is scar tissue in the lungs. So that's probably what's going to get me. But I'm on the treadmill four times a week. Do what you can to you know, to maintain it. And that's why I'm not going out during COVID because my doctor said, you'll have a one-way ride to the hospital. You yeah, can't get I'll this. Do that. So yes, yeah, so, you know, we're going to die. If some, everything dies. This microphone is going to die. <laughs> everything dies. I want to enjoy the ride. <laughs> and, and I got to tell you how you helped me all along when I got diagnosed. And, you know, that first, the first five years, I swear, every headache, brain tumor, every backache, bone cancer, you just go right to the dream because you never expected to hear the word cancer so you're kind of ready for that the the other shoe to drop so thank you for being there for me and helping me all along really you've been my friend i mean that's you and i can not see each other for five years catch up like a day instantly instantly. that's friendship well we're already at the halfway mark i want to pause and thank you for listening to me and hal becker one of my good friends Hal's the author of a lot of books we're going to talk about that in a minute i just want to thank you for listening to little detours with regina brett I know you have many podcast choices, and I'm grateful you chose to listen to mine. So, Hal, we're both authors. You have your first book was rejected 34 times. 
you didn't give up. How did you not give up? First, I'm going to go with this first author thing, okay? I got to tell you this because I take, I used to have this hobby. It's on my website, just a powered parachute. Okay. I've taken my close friends up. So I've taken a bunch, maybe, you know, 80, 90 people up and not just friends, people, you know. And then I take Regina up and then she writes this article. I'm going, oh my God, it was the most one. It was, a, I'm visualizing this whole story through her words, but it pissed me off because I realized she's an author. I write stuff. Okay. <laughs> so we are not in the same league. You seriously, I will never forget that. So you get rejected, rejected, rejected. You got a book and I'm just not giving up. So I finally... I, you know, it was like a $5,000 deal or 10,000. I don't remember the number. It was a nothing deal. But I told the publisher, I said, I, I will make this a national bestseller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We hear that all the time. And people don't realize that a national bestseller in the business genre is only 10,000 bucks. So that's it. You know, not, not, it's not a, not a uh, New York Times bestseller, just where you can put bestseller on the cover. So I said, I'll buy 10,000. He goes, what? You get 20 books, you know, when you know how it is. Here's your six books and or 20. I said, I'm going to buy 10,000 books. Now we're going to negotiate the price of the books back to me. What are you going to do with 10,000? Well, I'm going to give 2,500 away. I've got a whole staff. I'm going to write personal notes to major CEOs in the com- country. I'm going to give them to friends. It'll be like a calling card. People we like, we give them away. And the rest I'll sell in the seminars. And there's no shelf life. Before I knew it, it's I don't know how many... Uh, I don't count like you copies. I know it's well into the high hundreds of thousands, but I don't, you know, whatever. And but, that, first, uh, that first book was great. Can I have five minutes of your yeah, time? It was I, great. I learned a lot from it. Yeah. Then you get rejected by every other publisher on book two, book three, book four, book five. <laughs> you know, I mean, they don't care. <laughs> so you wrote the book, Lip Service on Customer Service, Get What You Want, About How to Negotiate, and yeah. the Ultimate Sales Book. Yeah. So do you have another book in you to, to come out? Yeah. Well, first of all, big mistakes. This is where people became, thought I was a motivational speaker. I should have stayed as a sales trainer, seriously, sales or sales management. But I want to do on customer service because of my company direct opinions. I thought, oh, I'll do it on negotiating. The next book that is the greatest title I've ever come up with. I can't wait for this to come out. I was talking to Regina Pryor. I'll probably do it audio because I'm lazy and old. And I don't know if I want to go through the whole rig and roll and get rejected by everybody. But it's called Elevator Speeches are Crap take the escalator. Best (laughs) title ever. Yeah. Great title. Oh, that's awesome. It's all done. It's, you know, how the manuscript is. The manuscript's done. just a matter of going through the editing process. Well, good, good. So I want to talk about some of the lessons that you have learned that you share in your books and your speeches. One of the big things you've taught me is to ask questions and shut up and listen, to really listen to people all the way through. Well, I'm a hypocrite. Because if you talk to my wife and daughter, they'll say, he doesn't listen. <laughs> so yes, I, I say it. I don't take my own advice. But I do highly recommend, like the story with the cancer, you need to ask questions. You're never going to learn anything by talking. And I am a huge subscriber of writing out your questions. I mean, look, it only took a minute, but I wrote down a bunch of notes in case, you know, in bullet points in case it comes up so I can focus on it. So you can never go through life too honest, too genuine, too sincere, but too prepared. People don't take the time. And it's so easy to prepare for things. Writing out questions and thinking in questions, we do it every day in our personal life. You and I are married and I come home at four in the morning. What's the first thing you say? Where were you? I go out. 
with who? Where'd you go? What were you eating? Who, what, who'd you go with? You got 50 more questions. In our business world, we just, oh, okay. I love it. We talk. I want to talk about Hal's Twinkie rules. One, be like a kid. Don't lose that fun inside you. Trust me, it's more fun to be around fun people. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, we all get tired of the complainers. Everybody, we all know someone's got the dark cloud over their head. And you feel sorry for some people do have a dark cloud, but a lot of people make it. And I was thinking about writing this book a long time ago, Regina, but then it would put me in a motivational speaking <laughs> status. But here was the book, and it's so simple to describe. Draw, and anybody can do this themselves from this podcast. Draw a circle. Put a dot in the center. That's you. Okay? Then in the circle, say to yourself on the outside, who do you want to be around? What friends are your really good friends? Which one's a pain in the neck? 86 of them. Everybody's got a crackhead sister-in-law, brother-in-law, drunk, whatever. And if they don't want the help and they keep whatever it is and they don't want any help, it's time to say, we're done. We've done everything we can. If you don't have, look, I didn't have a good snow plow guy. Okay. You're out. You're done. So just surround yourself, whether it's a bank, whether it's a, getting your hair cut, whatever it is, just do the circle. And then all of a sudden your life becomes easy. I love it. You're in charge of your life except for health. You can, I mean, you can control wellness, yeah. but you can't control other things. Well, I like using that circle. You know, I shoot archery and we have a target and there's all the different circles. And a lot of people are aiming their life, their big outer circles. They're worried about everything happening in the world, but they're not focused on the inside target, that little center where you really live. You, whatever God you believe in, your, your family, your closest friends. So I tell people that want me to do a million things, you know what, I've got to save my time for what's in the center of my target. And, and the more I've, you know, I got three grandkids now, I got two stepsons and a daughter, and she has a husband and my son has a wife, like at my inner circle grows. So that means I don't have a lot of time for the outer circles. Right. And that's okay. And there's nothing better than grandkids. Oh my God, the best. Oh my God, that is true. Back to your Twinkie rules. Uh, I love the learn from Disney, an, an amusement park, but they do it better than anyone else. Yep. Oh my, that is the truth. They know how to make people happy. Go to Six Flags, go to when we had Joggle Lake, go anywhere, then go to Disney. I'm not a shopper, but yeah. go to Nordstrom and then go to Macy's. Different experience. Go to Costco, which I am a member, and go to Sam's, which I am a member. Costco's a different experience. Yeah, I just remember that. Around the ones that do it better. Yeah. Apple. How do you have a bad experience with Apple? If anybody's ever been to the Apple store, you might not like the answer, but they're going to do everything they can to take care of you. You know, and people don't forget how, how they're treated. I remember the first moment at Trader Joe, never been there in my life. I was checking out and the guy said, have you been here before? And I said, no. He rings the bell and gives me my groceries for free. I've never forgotten that. Never. Yeah. And that was, I don't know how many years ago. I don't remember what I bought, but I remember the bell and the free groceries and I keep coming back. See, Trader Joe's doesn't have customers. They have fans. Yes. But it's the culture. It's the attitude. It's the people. You're only as good as your worst employee. Go to a restaurant. That's a good one. <laughs> I have bad service. You don't blame the, you don't say, oh, uh, Kathy the server or John the cook. You bl don't go to Applebee's. Which one? Any of them. <laughs> Not saying Applebee's, but we blame the whole location. Right. That's a good point. Well, I'm going to get to your company, uh, Direct Opinions. So you sold your company. Tell us why and, and what kind of turning point that uh, was for you. Short, the short, short story, I had three cars stolen. I'm an ex-Xerox guy, big company. 
And I get, I decided to buy a, go from a big car to a little tiny Honda import, a prelude, just so it wouldn't be stolen. There was no imports in, they had 6% market share. The dealership called me to see if I was satisfied with the service. I was so blown away. Well, I called the owners of the dealership and they couldn't have been nicer. I said, can you explain to me how you're doing this? This intrigues me. Yeah, come on in, I'll show you the whole process. Wow, and they had homemakers, housewives making the calls. I said, I can do this on a national basis. So I started the company December 1st of 82. And I remember there were 85 dealers in the city. I'll try to get as many as I can, then go in concentric circles and open up Columbus, Cincinnati, Dayton, you know, uh, Detroit, Pittsburgh. And then three weeks later, I was diagnosed with cancer. So I kept the company going. I had one full-time employee, two clients. And I said, I'll keep the company going because if I die, so what? My parents were still running their house. If I die, they can have my house. And if they want it, but at least they'll have the, the, you know, the property. Luckily, and when I got well, I just said, you know, something different attitude, money, power, you know, none of that stuff impresses me. In fact, the people I'm impressed with, when Regina and I know the same people, the ones that have done extremely well with money and or power in a position, and you think they work at JCPenney's. <laughs> so my attitude changed. I try to get as much business as I can. And we were doing a couple million calls a year. We had a number of cities going. And I thought, you know, I'm really a sales trainer. I want to sell this company. I'm tired of babysitting. I'm tired of problems. We had about 400 people working with us. And I just was an administrator. So I decided to sell it. I was able to retire. That lasted not even 30 minutes because daytime TV sucked. (laughs) You know, and there was no Netflix or anything. So, yeah, I sold it and uh, decided to do the next chapter in your life. And you were on the road quite a bit. I mean, you were always gone. This pandemic is the, except for the people that are sick or died, is the absolute greatest thing that's ever happened. Because you look at it and I'm going, wow, I went from 60 to zero. Zoom has been around for nine years. It went from 10 million users to 300 million users. Now I, I just call my friends, let's do a Zoom. Here's a link. So it really made you think of, people one at a time and not rushing. And Regina, you know, especially and your husband, not having to go to the airport, not listening to Al Roker in the morning to see what storms are around the country. Right, right. The pressure's taken off. Yeah. I've never gone through life. There's no stress, none. Yeah. yeah. No, I hear you. My husband, uh, he has a communications business. And the last two years, we were joking about having a t-shirt made with all the cities he was going to. It was like a band on tour. And it's so wonderful to have him home. And he's like a completely different person. Like it's changed. It relaxes you. Yeah. You know, I've got two, I just looked a couple of days ago, just on United, forget the other airlines, sure. 2.15 million miles. Where am I going to go? I don't want to get on an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will use them. But when, when COVID's over and retire and travel the world, but yeah, don't want to go um, anywhere. Hal, I want to talk about a big shift in your life. You were like the bachelor. And then suddenly... <laughs> You fell in love and like, Hal's getting married at 44? Whoa. Tell us about how you met Holly. Everyone at my wedding had an over-under, okay? Uh, I was basically Charlie Sheen without the beach house. Yeah, I was a bachelor. I was single. I I had didn't have any responsibility to anyone. And I just never thought of getting married. I never thought I'd meet the person. I'm driving to the airport. And there's a, a woman at the at the tickets, t- you know, they get your booth take, taking tickets and this amazing smile and blue eyes that just captivated me, just captivated me. 
And okay, that's it. And then where I'm on the bus, because I knew all the, I'm there so much. They go, oh, you know, the girl in the booth thinks you're cute. Really? So I ask her out. And of course, being the, the bachelor I was, my first intentions were not noble. I don't think <laughs> hers were as well. And after the second date, I just fell in love with her. And she was living in a trailer with her two-year-old daughter. And I couldn't see my life without them. And it's changed my life. We've been together since 94, something like that. And uh, she's my life. And my daughter's my life. And it's just, you know, it's, it, you literally go from whiplash from, you know, and even my friends are still, wow, he really did it. So I, I said that the first half of my life was having fun. My second half of my life was cleaning up the first half. <laughs> and so you became an instant dad too. What was that yeah. like? I had no idea what, I, I mean, I literally went to a psychologist and, you know, with questions, what do I do when she was six, 13, you know, what do I do out the dressing and this and that? And he's laughing because you're, no one's like, yeah, I go, well, I need to know. I don't have a, so I called luckily, luckily most of my friends, not most, almost all except one are really good spouses. They're great parents. I'm really around a healthy community of people that you admire and respect your close friends. And I called the best dads I knew and the best moms and said, Give me your advice. Give me everything. And everything they told me came true. Even my wife and I laughed. We said, we did not, we love our daughter, but we did not like her from 13 to 18. (laughs) (laughs) But then she's come back and everyone said, you're not going to like her, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I I had great advice from a friend who, when my daughter became a teenager, he said, don't take anything personally. Right. Yeah. And oh my God, because all of a sudden they're critiquing how you look, how you sound, every move you make and you... And I remember just hearing his voice saying, don't take it personally. It's about being a teenager. It has nothing to do with you. Wow, it really helped. As soon as my daughter turned, my granddaughter turns 12, here's what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> How does it feel? It's too funny. It's too funny. So I also want to talk real quick. We, we just have a couple minutes left. You are really big on giving back. I love the story that you, you traveled so much and you saved the free shampoos and conditioners. <laughs> Tell us about that and what you do with them. All right. Well, the first thing I'm really proud of is, and I, and I do want to talk about this, 10% of them, all our books go to Habitat for Humanity. The other goes to cancer, everything else. I just, like you, we both give back in different ways because it's important to us. You know, we get hit up by so many different, so much, you know, and I just say, look, cancer is my thing. So don't be offended. But when I was traveling, this is pre 9-11, you know, you go to the hotels, you get all these shampoos and conditioners, literally thousands and thousands where we laid them on the ground. It was a huge circle. And then it filled nine boxes taller than myself. We gave it to uh, all the women's shelters in the area and, and really high-end stuff too. It might've been a Four Seasons or, you know, I'm, when you travel, you know, when I travel, I'm in a days in or holiday, you know, but when they travel, they put you at nicer places. So I, you know, I used to sometimes even raid the, uh, the maid's card for a few extras, you know. <laughs> But it was my little hobby. And we had a complete pantry. It was all filled out and laid out. And it was a fun little collection, you know, and then especially to give it back. So, And I love that you helped the Cancer Hotline, a nonprofit that supports and assists cancer patients. And that cancer has always been something that you survive, but you don't forget. You, you help the next person. It, it, when I first got diagnosed, there was no one to talk to. Yeah. And I remember, I'm not going to mention names, but a few people I could reach out to. Some were helpful, some were not. Yeah. just blew me off. And then Richard Block, who was the founder of H&R Block, I searched him out and he started the cancer hotline. And that was his baby. And he was able to 
give me the information to start a location here in Cleveland. And then we, he provided a million bucks and I was able to get the land donated at UCI for the Cancer Survivors Park. And I'm really proud of that. He unfortunately passed away, but you want to give back. I mean, something never leaves you. It just doesn't leave you. It's like someone who had open heart surgery. It's never going to leave them. It's part of you. One last thing, the drum set behind you. Tell us about your band. All right. Uh, I'm, my whole life, I've been, this is, uh, you hit my, my button. My whole life, I've been a crappy drummer. Those drums are from eighth grade. <laughs> actually receipts on the wall. I've been terrible. I was kicked out of every band I was in. I never took a lesson. So about 11 years ago, I said, I'm going to start my own band. If I own the name, I own the website, I own the sound system, they can't kick me out. But I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to take lessons. I'm going to learn how to read music. I'm going to take lessons. I'm going to have someone come over non-COVID and have two different instructors get different points of view due to the art form. We started this uh, Motown funk disco, you know, a dance band. And I learned the lesson in business, surround yourself with the best people. My forte is the organization of it, coordination, getting the venues, the sales part, let everybody else do their job. We have so much fun. In fact, I talked to two band members last night. We love each other. I call them my family. And we're booked all year long, obviously, because of COVID, we're not now. But we go from 50, 40 to 50 jobs a year. This year, we might do 17 when the when this breaks, you know, after June, July. Yeah. And it's just so much fun to see the joy on people's faces. So as the drummer, this is the last comment, which I love. I'm always watching, like listening, but watching. And I'm looking for three things. If they're not tapping to the song, mouthing it, or dancing, get rid of that song. And we're only playing what the audience wants to hear. And so, you know, yeah. So it's, it's, it's such a joy. Music is such a joy. Well, Hal, I want to thank you. And uh, we were together on stage, oh gosh, a year (laughs) or two ago when the Gathering Place honored Eileen Safran and two cancer survivors who are just so full of joy. I felt like there was electricity just running through that room between the two of us. Like, And I just want to tell you how much you've meant to me as a survivor. Just have somebody a few, a few feet ahead of the journey to tell you it's going to be okay. Just hang in there. It means the world. Yeah, I'm going to reverse. She's been my hero in terms of being a real author, having real accolades. You know, I've got books. This is the woman you want to hang out with. <laughs> You're so funny. All right, well, I want to thank all of you for joining us. And the best way to reach you at halbecker.com, is that the best yep, way? Yep, everything's there. Okay. And I'll have a link to that on my website, reginabrett.com. My biggest takeaway is really to choose joy. No matter what's going on, you, you have the choice. So thanks for doing yeah. that to me. Hal, I want to close with your answer to this question. What is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? Wow. You know, it's hard to do, but to be empathetic. You know, it's so easy to get wrapped up in your own world. So the first thing I do every morning is I tell my wife after my cup of coffee, I'm sorry. She goes, what? I go, whatever I do later, I'm going to screw up. I'm telling you right now, I'm sorry. You know, it is, it's picking up the phone and calling people. Instead of talking about yourself, ask them about their day. Be genuine. Just, you know, so one moment at a time, but you got to think of that moment first to put them first. Because I'm being only child, I'm a very selfish person and I need to get away from that selfishness at times. And think about the other person, especially in our world. You're on stage, or you know what I mean? You got to just step back and go, wait a minute, who cares? Hal, thank you so much. It was beautiful. Take care. This was great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. 
If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.